23, verses 13 through 26. We're continuing on talking about stewards of a sacred trust. This morning we're going to talk about being stewards of God's children. And they really are God's children in some sense. They're on loan to us for a while to raise up in the fear and admonition of the Lord before we send them out. Proverbs 23, beginning at verse 13. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. My son, if your heart is wise, my heart too will be glad. My inmost being will exalt when your lips speak what is right. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Hear, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Do not be among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meats, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them in rags. Listen to your father who gave your life, and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, and understanding. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. My son, give me your hearts and let your eyes observe my ways. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we pray that you will give us guidance this morning as we think about another sacred trust that we have, our children. Father, thank you that you have given us guidance in your word as to how to raise our children so that they can be wise, so that they can have understanding, so that they can fear you, so that they can pass on the faith to their children. Father, I want to pray that because of our parenting, many generations, countless generations will be impacted. Father, I want to ask you this morning to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine for the glory of your name. Amen. You may be seated. As we talk about parenting this morning... Let's not discard with our theology. I think most of us understand that we are saved by grace through faith. We also understand that we are sanctified, that we continue on in the Christian life by grace through faith. But let's also remember that we parent by grace through faith. Uh, To begin with, we parent by grace. I think it goes without saying that parenting is very hard work. And if you think it's not hard work, that's because you don't have any kids yet. (laughs) Parenting is very hard work. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul said, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So let's remember as we parenting, God will enable us by His grace 
to do what He is calling us to do. And we need for Him to be gracious to us in so many ways. If you've ever seen a family and you thought to yourself, boy, look at those kids. So well behaved. So respectful. They, they are blessed with such good kids. I have to tell you, if you've ever made that observation, ever made that comment, or even thought that to yourself, you are absolutely wrong. They were not blessed with good kids. They were blessed with rotten kids. <laughs> what do I mean by rotten kids? Well, by rotten kids, I mean kids who are descendants of Adam, conceived in sin, and by nature, rebellious sinners. If it so happens that over time, um, they have manners and they're curious, they're respectful, that's because God has been gracious to those parents as, as they've disciplined them and instructed them and prayed for them and corrected them, etc., etc. God has been gracious to them. But I want to take this a step further. We parent not only by grace, but by grace through faith. And I want to focus it in two aspects. Or I want to focus on the covenantal promises of God and then the principles of God's Word. First of all, we parent based on the promises of God's Word. And specifically, I'm referring to the promises where God says that He will be God to us and to our children. We need to realize that God has always worked with families and not just isolated individuals. Now, He does work with individuals, but He also works with families. And we could even say He works with churches. And we could even say He works with nations. But specifically, think of how He works with families. In Genesis 17.7, God entered into a covenant with Abraham. And this is what He said. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generation for an everlasting covenant. And then this is what he said the purpose of the covenant was. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. Now I highlight that because many say that the covenant made with Abraham just concerned temporal, earthly blessings. And yes, there were temporal blessings. There were earthly blessings, such as the land in Canaan that He promised to His people. But He also promised in this covenant to be God not only to you, but to your children. That's what the, the promise concerns. Now, many people think that was in the Old Testament. But when we come to the, the New Covenant, it's more individualistic. But that same promise to be God to you and your children is reiterated when God talks about the new promise or the new covenants. This is what was prophesied in Isaiah 59, verse 21. And as for me, this is my covenant with them. He's talking about the new covenant that will be made. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in my mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Now, that's significant. 
God's making a new covenant with His people. And He said, My words will not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your children or your children's children forevermore. And one of the purposes of the new covenant is so that God's people wouldn't turn away. We see the same thing in Jeremiah 31, which is spelled out in great detail in Hebrews 8. And one of the purposes of the new covenant is that God would send His Spirit so that He would write His Word upon our hearts so that we would not turn away. One of the shortcomings, if you will, with the Old Covenant is that God's people were continually turning away. But God says, I'm going to strengthen you with the New Covenant. You're going to have My Spirit abiding within you so that you will not turn away. So that the faith will continue on from generation to generation. Now, how does that happen? Does that just happen automatically? It doesn't happen just automatically. It happens as we raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. This is what we read in Genesis 18:19. The Lord said concerning Abraham, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what He has promised him. So Abraham receives all these great promises, including being God to his children, and those promises will be fulfilled as Abraham teaches and instructs his children. That's how it works. Now this is important because I want us to realize as we raise our kids, you know, it's not a crapshoot. You know, it's not as though we just roll the dice and hopefully they'll turn out okay. God has given these promises to encourage us, to spur us on. I remember I was at a conference one time and I was listening to the speaker and he said, well, you know, when it comes to your children, maybe they're elect, maybe they're not elect. And I thought, do you know what you just said to these parents? You, you just said there's nothing they can do. It's, it's completely out of their control. Now, don't misunderstand. I believe in the sovereignty of God. We've already talked about that a couple of times today. I believe that God elects those to salvation. But at the same time, God also says, and as you raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, you can be confident that they will be among the elect and that they will come to faith in My Son. So we are given these promises and we parent clinging to these promises saying, Lord, you promised this. And let me also say, I do not believe this is presumption. I've heard some say this is presumptive parenting. I don't think there's anything presumptive about believing the promises of God. I think this is faithful parenting. When God says, I'll be God to you and your children, when you raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, I say, thank you. And by the grace of God, we'll do the best we can. Now, I know this is also frightening because we all fall short and we struggle with our kids. Some of you may have prodigals at this very moment. But remember, they are never beyond the grace of God. Never. And that's why we have stories of the prodigal son, for example, in the Bible. It's a reminder. They can go off and they can be involved in the worst sin. They, they can literally be in the pig pen eating the pig slop. 
And God can bring about conviction. They can recall the things that they had learned while they were growing. And God can bring them back. And many of us know that we're first generation Christians. From, from one perspective, it's like out of the blue, all, all of a sudden, God just grabbed a hold of us and He said, you're going to be a part of my family. And He took us and He brought us into His family. And we're like, how did I get here? And the answer is, the grace of God. So no one is beyond the reach of God. No one is beyond the grace of God. We should never give up. Even if we know we've made mistakes. Even if we leave here this morning saying, I wish I would have heard these things 20 years ago. Never too late. Never too late. Remember the thief on the cross? Moments from death. Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Saved at the very last hour because God is gracious. So we parents clinging to the promises of God and we parents by looking at the principles of God's Word. And there's so much we could say here, but I want to look at just three general areas. And that is the area of discipline, instruction, and example. First of all, let's begin with discipline. Verse 13, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. Now, when we talk about discipline, I think right up front, I need to mention the two extremes that we have. On the one side, we have that of passivity, where parents never instruct the children, never discipline them, just allow them to do Whatever they want. On the other hand, we have abuse. Where kids are hit where they should not be hit. Where parents may be in a rage when they're disciplining their children. And that is completely inappropriate. I believe the middle ground, the biblical ground, is calmly under control, explaining to the child so they understand why you're applying the Board of Education to the seat of learning. Believe that's what's called for biblically here. Now, I know many are very tentative when we talk about discipline, but we need to understand what God says. And we need to understand human nature. Turn back to Proverbs 22.15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Folly. Not sugar and spice and everything nice. (laughs) Folly. Uh, If you want a more theological term, uh, children are totally depraved. That doesn't mean that they're as bad as they could possibly be, but that means that every aspect of their being, their mind, their emotions, their will, their conscience, and their body is affected by sin, which means that they have a natural bent that goes right towards sin, that goes right towards evil, that goes right towards selfishness. That's how children are born. That's why one of the first words that a kid learns about one is mine. <laughs> mine. Right, right away, they learn that. That's that selfishness just coming out. And you thought, well, I didn't teach them to say mine. We're... Where did that come from? It came from Adam, if you want to know. It was inherited by Adam. And that's the sinful nature that they have. 
folly is bound up in the heart of the child. And the author goes on to say, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. It's very clear. It's not hard to understand. God's appointed means for dealing with that folly that's in the heart of the child is the rod of discipline. Not finger pointing. Not yelling. Not timeouts. The, the rod of discipline. Again, you don't, you don't have to ask, well, what does that mean in the Hebrew? It's very clear. It's right there on the surface. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Turn to Proverbs 29.15, if you will. Proverbs 29.15 The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. The rod and reproof give wisdom. Now let me also point out here that we're talking about a child. Okay? The rod and reproof give wisdom to a child. You need both. Have, have you ever seen a mother or a father lecturing a two-year-old? Um, generally speaking, two-year-olds don't need lectures. They need spanking. And again, this is very general. You know, sometimes people ask me, when should you stop spanking? Um, I don't know. <laughs> so don't ask me afterwards, okay? I, I don't really know. But generally speaking, this is how it works. And I think you kind of look at scales. Uh, when children are very young... I think they need more of the rod. Sometimes if they're little, maybe even just a slap on the wrist will let them know. You can say, no, slap them on the wrist. Uh, because they don't understand. They're not ready to be reasoned with. You know, when they're one year old, you don't want to give them a big dissertation on why they shouldn't be selfish and why they should share and what it means to love your neighbor. Um, they need more little bit of understanding, a little more reproof. As they get older, I think the scale needs to shift, if you will, and less and less of the rod and more and more of the reproof. So, ideally, that's how it works. If you say we haven't done that, uh, be careful having mid-course corrections uh, because that really throws children off. Often I tell the story of uh, when our oldest daughter, J.C., came home from college and I said, uh, you want to get your homework done on Saturday so that you don't have to do homework on Sunday, uh, the Lord's Day. And she said, well, when did that start? And I said, last week. <laughs> I said, I've just come to understand that it's important to have a, a day of rest and that God's ordained the Sabbath for a day of rest. So we're, we're changing things. You want to be careful. God, just, that'll really throw kids off. Uh, but they need both. By the way, let me also say that discipline is an inescapable category. In other words, you will apply some method or means of discipline. I remember I, I spoke on this a number of years ago and one of the, the ladies in our congregation at the time uh, didn't agree with me. Uh, she was into what was called, I guess, gentle parenting. But this is what I noticed. It's just an observation. Uh, one Sunday I was sitting in my office and uh, she needed to get her kids together and they weren't cooperating. So she raised her voice 
to get their attention, and then they finally came about. Now I thought, okay, if you don't use the rod, you're going to use something. Many parents opt for yelling. Um, they think disciplining with the rod is just too harsh, so they're going to use their voice. And they're just going to scream at the kids. You're, you're going to use something. Manipulation. Bribery. Maybe you've seen parents doing that in the grocery store. Honey, pay attention. I'll give you whatever when you get home. Uh, you're, you're going to use something. But what are you going to do when your kids don't behave? You, you have to do something. I mean, if, if they don't come with you when you're in the grocery store and you say it's time to go, I mean, are you just going to sit there for hours on end waiting? You have to do something. Let me also point out, and I, I've talked to kids about this, if you give them an option, would you rather have a calm, controlled spanking or would you rather have a father and mother who's out of control and yelling at you? Which would you rather have? Most kids will pick the spanking. And if you think they won't, go, go ahead and just ask some kids. Uh, they will pick the spanking because they appreciate calmness. And if they understand why they're getting the spanking, if it's, if it's reasonable, uh, most of them will realize, I deserve this because of what I've, what I've done. So, again, this is, this is what the Bible tells us that we are to do. Um, this is not some psychologist making this up. This is right here in God's Word. And let me also add that it's powerful. Look at the verses again. If you strike him with the rod, or excuse me, let me start at verse 13. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with the rod, he will not die. Um, I think this is a word to tender-hearted parents. He will not die. He's going to be okay. I know he'll cry for a little while. I know that it'll hurt on his backside for a little while. Uh, but he won't have a permanent scar and he will recover. I think this is God's Word to tender-hearted parents. Verse 14, If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. That's the literal a transliteration of the Hebrew. The New King James Version translates this hell. You will save his soul from hell. And I think that's a good translation because Sheol could be saving his soul from physical death or spiritual death. And I think the reference is to spiritual death because it's talking about the child's soul. This means that discipline is evangelistic. And I really mean that. You will save his soul from hell. Discipline tells children that sin is serious. That there's a punishment to sin. And if when you're spanking then you tell them, now if we ask for forgiveness, God will forgive us. They'll understand that too. And by the way, when you say that and you discipline them, forgive them. That's very important because you want them to understand that when you ask God for forgiveness, He forgives you. What do we do at the beginning of the service? We had a time of confession, right? And in my prayer, every week I include what's called the absolution. And that's just a technical term for the pronouncement of forgiveness. So we pray, we ask God for forgiveness every week in the service, and then God says, you are forgiven. I know you're sincere, you're genuine in asking for forgiveness. You are forgiven. When our children own up to their sin and they ask us for forgiveness, we want to do the same thing. We represent God. 
So forgive them. Intentionally smile. Okay, let's go on with our day. And they're more than happy to go on with the day. They're, they're waiting to see if you're ready to go on with the day. <laughs> but let them know they really are forgiven. And this is evangelistic. It teaches children a lot about sin. By the way, there's precedence to this kind of discipline in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 11. It's really a fascinating passage. The Corinthians were... Um, abusing the Lord's Supper, really just making a mockery of it. We're told that some of them were drinking so much of the communion wine, they were getting drunk. Uh, the rich people were on one side, the poor were on the other side. They didn't want to associate with one another. Um, Paul was outraged by this. The Lord was outraged by this. Um, because of this behavior, he brought serious discipline on the church. In 1 Corinthians 11:28, we read, Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Because their abuse of the Lord's Supper, they were disciplined, some were weak, some were ill, some were died. Can I paraphrase? Some were disciplined to death because of what they were doing. Paul goes on and he says, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. So if we would judge ourselves first, God wouldn't have to judge us. And then he says, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that, here's the purpose of the discipline, including death, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. That's fascinating. The Corinthians were disciplined so that they wouldn't continue on in their sin and be condemned. So this is the purpose of discipline. To stop children from sinning. From sinning that will lead to ultimate condemnation. It tells them, this is serious, I have to stop this kind of behavior. And let's remember, this is love. In Hebrews 12, quoting Proverbs 3, we're told that God disciplines those He loves so that they will not continue on in this sinful path and end up destroying their lives. Because that's what we do when we're left to ourselves. And I think we all understand that. If we're just left to ourselves, we just continue right on with sin. That's the judgment of God. Read Romans 1. They sinned and God gave them over. He said, you want to sin? Continue right on. Go ahead. That's the judgment of God. The grace of God is saying, stop it. And I'm going to spank you so that you stop. I'm going to discipline you so that you stop sinning. And again, I, I know children will not understand that this is love at first, but later they will. Those of us who are older and can look back and say, okay, I understand why my parents were disciplined because they cared about me. They didn't want me to continue right on. And as our children get older, they will understand. This is because my mom cares about me. My dad cares about me. Verse 15 is interesting. My son, direct the son specifically, if your heart is wise, my heart too will be glad. My inmost being will exalt. In other words, we'll rejoice, we'll celebrate when your lips what is right. 
Kids, do you know that you have great power? You can bring great joy to your parents or great sorrow to your parents. And I really would plead with you to be such a child that your father, your mother would rejoice in you because of your behavior, because of your responsiveness. So parents have their part to play. You have your part. Be responsive. You need to understand why you're being disciplined, what your parents are called to do by God. Respond appropriately and you will bring great joy to your parents. So discipline is an important part of parenting. So is instruction. Verse 17. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. The instruction here specifically has to do with envy. And envy is one of those subtle sins and it drives us a lot more than we realize. The late American newspaper editor Emil Henry Gavro said that he was part of that strange race of people aptly described as spending their lives doing things they detest to make money they don't want, to buy things they don't need to impress people they dislike. <laughs> now, we laugh at that, but I think there might be a lot more truth to that than we realize. This is what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 4.4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Now, yes, Solomon is slightly exaggerating, but he's exaggerating to make a point. Why are we doing what we're doing? Why are we buying the things that we buy? Who are we trying to impress? Are we really doing it for God? Or are we doing it to keep up with the Joneses? I don't know who these Joneses are, but why are we trying to keep up with them? Why are they the standard? Why do we envy them? This is a subtle sin and it's a powerful sin. Some of you are familiar with the seven deadly sins. On that list of seven deadly sins, not harmless peccadillos, but seven deadly sins is envy. And you might be wondering, is envy really that powerful? And I want to say, it can be. It can be. Turn, turn back to Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is written by Asaph. Uh, he was one of the worship leaders in Israel. Psalm 73 is biographical and he talks about his, his struggle that he had. In verse 1 he says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in hearts. So that, that was the creed of Israel. God's, God's good to Israel, to those who are pure in hearts, to those who, who walk with Him and live a blameless life. Verse 2, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. When Asaph talks about his feet slipping, what he means is, I almost apostatize. I almost turn my back on Yahweh, 
the God of Israel. And he almost did that because of envy. Because he looked around and he thought, wow, look at this broken down chariot. These other guys, they're driving fully loaded luxury chariots. Wow. Looking at his clothes and thinking, wow, look, look at the clothes they have. He was looking at his tents. He's like, wow, look, look at the tents that they have. And we think, oh, he, he was just in his heart saying, oh, I wish I had what they had. But realize, he's saying, I almost turned away from God because of that. Because I was envious of what they had. And his whole view of life became distorted. Look at verse 4. For they have no pangs until death. Really? No pangs whatsoever until they die? Their life is pain-free? Really? They don't have any struggles? Their bodies are fat and sleek. Now, don't ask me how that works. I'm not really sure. I, I read that. I thought, they get to be fat and sleek at the same time. Does that mean they get to eat whatever they want and they're still, you know, sleek bodies? I, I don't know. Let's skip over that. Verse 5. They are not in trouble as others are. No trouble. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Everybody else is stricken because that's just a part of life. But not these guys. They're in a separate category. All by themselves. They just they have it made. Nobody has it that good. But that's what we think, isn't it? I've heard people say, wow, they, just, they really have it made. Do they? Does anybody really have it made? But we, we think that sometimes. Look at verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. They increase in riches. Really? Always at ease? Never struggles? Their, their riches always increase? Their, their investments always gain money? Their stocks always increase? Really? Always? They, they never have any financial setbacks? That they really have it that good? But this is what envy does. It, it distorts reality. We think they just haven't made. It's just, wow, it's me and my family. We're, we're the only ones struggling. I don't, I don't get it. Why is that? But it's serious because look at verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Here I am trying to live a godly life and it's all been for nothing. It's all been a waste. This is what Asaph thinks. And it's tormenting him. Verse 14, For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Verse 15, he tells us how he kept it to himself. For if I said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So he just kept quiet. But everything changed in verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task, until... I went to the sanctuary of God. We might say, until I went to church, then I discerned their end. Something happened when Asaph went to the sanctuary of God. I don't know if it was a song they sang. I don't know if it was a scripture reading. I don't know if it was a message. But all of a sudden, the Spirit of God got a hold of Asaph, opened his eyes, and he said, these rich people over here that you're admiring, you think they have it all made? Let me tell you what's going to happen to them. They're on the broad road that leads to destruction. 
truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. Oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. All of a sudden, Asaph wrote, why am I envying these people? Because even if they do have the greatest life, a day of judgment's coming and they're going to be sorry. And they would trade everything that they had to repent and turn to God, but it's going to be too late. So we need perspective. And that's one of the things we see in Proverbs. After verse 17, when he says, let not your heart envy sinners, in verse 18 he says, surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. The people of God have a future. You will not be cut off. Persevere. Endure. You will continue on. And then some examples are given in verse 17. Hear my son and be wise and direct your heart in the way. Do not be among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and slumber will clothe them with rags. Uh, this isn't talking about little children. Sometimes we think Proverbs was written for five and six-year-olds. Uh, some of it was written for five and six-year-olds. Some of Proverbs is written to adult children. And we know that because some of, pa- some of the passages we're talking about the son, he's married. And he has a business. And he's raising his family. Um, so I don't think too many of us have to worry about our five and six-year-olds uh, hanging out with the drunkards and the gluttons. <laughs> uh, but when they hit their 20s, that might be a different story. So Proverbs, it covers the whole gamut. It covers little children, teenagers, adult children, married children as well. So in some ways, we're talking about peer pressure here. And it's interesting, right at the beginning of Proverbs, the first bit of instruction that we see uh, the father giving to his son concerns his peers. Peer pressure is powerful. I remember one time there was a man celebrating his uh, 100th birthday. And the news media was there and they said, wow, what is it like to be 100 years old? And he said, well, I no longer have to worry about peer pressure. (laughs) Uh, The rest of us still have to worry about peer pressure. Even when we're older, we have to admit that we're influenced by our peers. Uh, But we have to be careful about who we're envying and the effect that it can have upon us. And then let me just drop down to the last point, uh, which has to do with example. And we find that in verse 26. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Now, here it's interesting because this father, Solomon, is telling his son, watch what I do. But here's what you can rest assured of. Even if you don't say to your son or your daughter, watch what I do, they are watching. They are watching every day. If you think, oh, we we didn't have family devotions today. I didn't instruct them in the things of the Lord today. Yes, you did. Maybe you didn't open up the Bible and say, let's let's look at the Bible today. But you instructed them. You gave them an example to follow. You said something about the Christian life. 
just by how you lived your life. Just this last week, I was listening to an interview with John MacArthur, and he said he learned how to love his wife by watching his father love his mother. He didn't say anything about a Bible study on husbands and wives. He said he just learned it by observing how his father loved his mother and it had a strong effect. So an example is very important. But let me say that there's really more to it than just being an example to our children. Turn to Exodus 20, if you will. Exodus 20 has to do with the Ten Commandments. And at this point, I've really come full circle and I want to talk about the promise again. The promise of God and how He works with generations. Exodus 20, verse 4, the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. I'll stop right there for a minute. God is a jealous God. He wants our complete and total love and allegiance. And when we turn away from Him, when we sin, what effect does that have on coming generations? It gets passed along, doesn't it? Look at that. To the third and fourth generations. Not just our children, grandchildren, but our great-grandchildren and our great-great-grandchildren. Some of us may not live to see our great-grandchildren or our great-great-grandchildren. But this passage is telling us that nonetheless, our life is affecting future generations just by how we live. And if I were to ask you, do any of you struggle with the sins of your fathers? Any of those sins got passed along? You look back and you're like, I know where that came from. It's not an excuse. Never an excuse. We're we're never to be fatalistic or defeatist here. Thinking, well, my father was like that or my grandfather was like that, so I'm just destined to be like that. That is not true. But at the same time, we learn habits, sins, that get passed along. But this is where the grace of God comes in. We, we can cut that off. And by the grace of God, we can say it's going to stop right here. And we can start a new, a new line. Just yesterday, I was reading in the Kings. Second uh, Kings 5, I was reading about uh, Naaman, who was a valiant soldier. But he had leprosy. And he went to Elisha. And he was told to um, wash in the... Uh, in the water seven times, go down seven times and you'll come out. And he was cleansed. And then Elisha's servant went to Naaman after he was cleansed. Elisha said he didn't want any money, but the servant went and collected the money, disregarding what the prophet Elisha had said. And because of his disobedience, uh, this is what Elisha said. Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and your descendants forever. 
And I thought, wow. Because of his rebellion, his descendants forever were affected because of his sin. That's the negative side. There is a positive side, and probably one of the best examples in the Kings is David. Again and again we read, for the sake of my servant David, another one of his descendants is going to sit on the throne in Judah. For the sake of my servant David, another descendant is going to sit on the throne. And here's the positive side. Continuing on in the second commandment, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Showing steadfast love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And in case it's not clear there, it's very explicit in Deuteronomy 7, 9. I'll just read it for you. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenants and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. To a thousand generations. If a generation is roughly 20 years, this is saying for 20,000 years. This means that you could have those descendants who walk with Jesus Christ all the way up to the return of Jesus Christ. To a thousand generations really is just God's way of saying forever until the end of time, your descendants will continue on because you're walking with me today. So it's more than an example. God is dealing with future generations just by how we live today, how we conduct ourselves. And, and so often, when I, when I pray with my kids at night and I pray that they'll grow up and be godly so often, I think, then I better walk with God. If I want them to be godly, I better walk with God. Because I'm having an impact on them. This is powerful. Several years ago, Christian Life and Faith magazine presented some interesting results as they contrasted the generations that came from two different families. The first family was the Jukes family. Their legacy began in 1677 when an immoral man married a very licentious woman. 1,900 descendants came from that union. Of these, 771 were criminals. 250 were arrested for various offenses, 60 were thieves, 39 were convicted for murder, 40 of the women were known to have had venereal disease, these people spent a combined total of 1,300 hours behind bars and cost the state of New York nearly $3 million. The second family was the Edwards family. The third generation included Jonathan Edwards, who was the great English uh, New England pastor and theologian. Of the 1,344 descendants, many were college presidents and professors. 186 became ministers of the gospel, and many others were active in their churches. 86 were state, state senators. Three were congressmen. 30 were judges, and one became vice president of the United States. No reference was made to anyone spending time in jail. That's how it works. You walk with me and God says, I will bless the descendants. You turn away, you live a sinful life, 
it's going to affect descendants. So we need to discipline our children, instruct our children, and we need to walk with God. And who knows the impact that it may have. Think of why we're here today. If you're a Christian, you're here because of one man's obedience. Because of the obedience of Christ. And we're told that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, his righteousness is imputed to us. So we should be thankful that God works this way, that God works through representatives. Sin came through Adam. We're all fallen because of that. But righteousness comes through Jesus Christ and we're forgiven and we're given eternal life because of Him. And as we follow Him and as we live with Him, the generations that come from us can be positively affected. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank You for the instruction of Your Word. Thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your mercy. Father, we ask that You will help us parents to discipline our children and instruct them as we should. And Father, help us to be careful to keep a close eye on our walk with You as well. Father, we are having an impact. It's not a matter of what kind of impact we will or if we will have an impact. It's a matter of what kind of impact we will have. Father, be gracious to us so that future generations can be positively impacted because of us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.